Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is Elizabeth Berkeley Lauren, who you know, of course, from the original Saved by the Bell, the cult classic Showgirls, and now the new Saved by the Bell on Peacock. Elizabeth has that ability to make you feel like you're the center of the world, and I hope you get the same feeling from listening to her. After talking with Elizabeth, I'm joined again by psychotherapist, author, and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, Dr. Alex Katahakis. In contrast to my random suggestions, Dr. Alex has some really great advice. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing your stories with us. If you want to get in touch, please reach out with a link on our website at unqualified.com. Okay, here's Elizabeth. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified. With your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, Elizabeth. Oh my gosh, how are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. You as well. I have been a fan for a long, long time. You know, when ladies in our industry finally get to connect, tell me if you feel this way. I think in our minds that there's like a shortage of things. So whether it's opportunity or let's say in college or high school, like the guy or whatever friend group, there's this lack mentality that we kind of grow up with. There was a whole pack of us that would audition against each other. And there was more of a competitive spirit or more of not a desperation, but like deep desire and ambition. And in our industry, one can make a big change. One job can do that. So you know, you fall under the spell of this thing that can make or break you. And so therefore, yeah, you may not be bonding as much with, let's say, the handful of girls that you go up against. Yeah. I mean, I always hoped that I was sending out a good energy, but it's competitive and it's a tough business, right? I think also motherhood changes you. Our little guys are one month apart, by the way. Really? Yeah. Two little boys. Sky? Yeah. July 20th, 2012. Oh my gosh. Are you guys August? August 17th. Almost a month. But yeah, you grow up and you realize like the people you're meant to love will find you. You'll find them. The jobs that are meant to find you, you'll find them too. I mean, we all have had job heartbreaks, right? Yes. That you thought was the one. But yeah, I mean, we get what we're supposed to get. And I think there's more of a calm within just as we grow. It's just our brains deteriorating. <laughs> Is that what creates the calm? I don't know. For me, probably. <laughs> By the way, not to say that there's so much calm at this moment in general, but just in terms of like, you know, fighting for the job or the gig. And then it becomes like a thing of also wanting to create your own things too and not be at the behest of that machine to make a decision whether you're worthy. Completely. I think I had a point in my career where it felt like if I don't attempt to create my own work, I'm not going to work. Right. That was around maybe 27. It felt like kind of the teen boom was over a bit. Right. And I was very much solidified in the world of comedy, which confused me. Why did they confuse you? I was never a funny child. And Scary Movie was my first audition in LA. Yeah. And I got it, which was insane. But I was a really quiet, serious child huh. with a very active imagination. But I love comedy, but I sure can't get out of it. <laughs> okay, but that's a problem you want to have. No? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or we create a drama together and just show them how it's done. I love it. I love it. But there's something about the type of comedy that really, I think, sets you apart. It's not shtick. You're so smart that you're in on it. Does that make sense? Thanks. You're in on the comedy, even though you're obviously present to whatever scene or character you're playing, but you're not judging the character. 
you are living and breathing it, but it's something I've noticed in the brand of comedy that you just shine in and not to limit you, but I'm just saying it's something that a lot of people can't do. It's just something I've been really impressed by. Elizabeth, thank you. That's a really thoughtful and kind compliment. I always say that I am the person who's willing to just make a complete ass out of themselves. But that's refreshing, My God, you know, and also to be self-deprecating. I am that in my life and I like to bring that to work, but some roles are not written that way. But that spirit is something I want to be around people like that. Humor is at the core and it's healing, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you said you're very protective of Saved by the Bell. So I wanted to explore that idea. So what inspires such loyalty? I have my own theories, of course. Well, for all of us, like the core six of us, let's say 89, 90 is when we got the show. We were all 15 years old. So we were children when we were doing it. And there was something about that moment in our culture. Obviously, there was no social media. And doing a show like that, that was already, first of all, the tone was so earnest. But there was an innocence. Like we were doing high school together. We were doing this show together. And bigger than all of that, all of our dreams were coming true together at the same time. And so the show, even if it hadn't continued as anything in pop culture, and if it hadn't had this legacy and like generation after generation loving it, even if it had just been those episodes and done, those people, that circumstance, that moment in time would still have that impact on me personally that I would have carried through in my life and my adoration for my castmates. You know, we are still in touch. I know you had Mark Paul on, which was so much fun to hear some of the things in his perspective on, you know, the crushes that were going on. And that was interesting because it was the first time he had come out to really talk about that with you. Oh, really? Yes. All right. And I remember I texted him. I was like, um, hello. <laughs> Did we want to talk about that first? It was so cute, though, because like there was, again, such an innocence that, you know, I remember him saying on your show, like something like, well, those were the girls that were around me. And I said, oh, excuse me, like there was a problem with that. I don't think a lot of guys would have had an issue with that. Yeah, no kidding. But they're really like siblings to me. You know, we really went through that rite of passage together in so many different ways. And so that's one reason why it has meant a lot. And then just no matter what job we've all done, and we're really, for a group that started so young, especially the core four of us have just never stopped working, have always had each other's backs. And even if there'd be you know, a few years where you don't really see each other or talk, I'm not saying we're best, best friends in every moment through our 20s and 30s and now in our 40s, but when it has mattered, we've been there. We know each other's spouses. We know each other's children. We've been through highs and lows of life beyond childhood. So like, I care about these people and I care about like what we created together. And then on a whole other level, what it has meant to people, I can't ignore. And that's why I feel protective. Like, yes, it was a fun, silly little show that was on a Saturday morning, but something about it has stayed and has meant something to people. There have been people who've come up to me with tears in their eyes saying, I was a latchkey kid and I would come home from school and you guys were my only friends. Childhood is an interesting time for people. It's like, even if they're going through a hard time, the pockets that were still innocent stay with you and you want to cling to it or you want to reflect on it later when, I mean, we all get knocked around a little bit. Life is beautiful and amazing, but nobody goes unscathed. So I feel like there's something about that time and this show was an escape for people it was about goodness and connection and whatever it meant to different people, it has meant a lot. And so I was protective of that legacy for them too. 
combo. Completely. And the new show is so fun. Thank you. I would be so thrilled to revisit something that's so beloved that you helped build. Yeah. You know, when we finished, we graduated high school. So we were really the age we were playing. So let's say if at 19, we all were really ready for something new. So at that time to keep going with it, I think we all would have felt a little held back. I'm going to speak about myself personally, because, you know, Tiffany moved on to 90210 right away. I moved on to Showgirls after that. We all had different goals and a different vision. So I think we needed this distance from it for it to be fun again, because it would have felt like being stuck if it was too soon. And I don't think people would have loved it. I don't think we would have wanted to revisit it until we had really like explored a million other things in our own lives, creatively, artistically, and all of that. But also it made sense now before in pop culture, it wouldn't have been ready. And I can only say this looking back. I think you're on any show for X amount of time. You want to shake it up and do something different, especially if people have seen you one way. And I think for us, especially because we were feeling more grown up, we were all ready to take on something new. And I mean, mine was pretty bold. (laughs) It was not neutral coming out of there to take that on. But I knew that I wanted to do movies after that. And I wanted to do something really interesting. Can I ask you some questions about it? Would that be all right? Absolutely. Let's do it. So I was doing my YouTube research on you. Yes. What does that look like? Is it just you plug in my name and see what pops up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw a clip and I couldn't figure out where it was from. You are celebrating in front of a large group of people, the 20th anniversary of Showgirls. And what you said was amazing. You basically kind of summed up your journey with it a bit. Yeah. In that, I don't want to speak for you, but do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, definitely. It was five years ago and it was actually the day that gay marriage became legal. And so my team had gotten an invite for me as I had through the years to like either make a speech or do an intro for showgirls. You know, since then, since 95, the film has found such a strong place in pop culture as like a cult classic. Who knew? It's so good, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's so good. I rewatched it. No. Yeah, because, yeah, (laughs) it is so specifically delicious. Good. Okay. It was over the top and I was directed in a very broad way, as was everyone. Our director was Paul Verhoeven, who had done Basic Instinct and Robocop and all these big movies. But it was definitely an over the top version of what Vegas is like. That was his vision and we fulfilled that. But, you know, it was met with such controversy when it first came out, which I don't think now it would have the same kind of effect. But through the years, it found this great love, especially through the gay community. Like they just embraced it, celebrated it. And it's like an anthem. It's this amazing thing to me that something that was so cruel at the time could have ended up being so beloved. Like you just never know in life. That's really the fact. Elizabeth, but that's really because of you. I really believe that your journey with that movie has permeated culture without us sort of knowing it, without us being totally aware Mm. of your specific journey with that movie because people love you And so it's almost like that is a very important part of how beloved it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wish we could have talked back then. (laughs) Listen, we all go through our things, right? This was very, very public at the time and really cruel, especially as a young woman. You would appreciate this as an actress. Like, I mean, I'm not a victim. I don't want to paint that at all. I don't live in my past. And to circle back to your great question, and I'll come back to this about what that evening was. 
It was an incredible night. It was actually at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, by the way, which is so random and crazy. They do these screenings of kind of culty films. Oh my God, I wish I had been there. Right? And it was insane. There were like 5,000 people. And again, that night was celebrating the day that gay marriage became legal. And they had asked me to come and speak and we had declined. Not because I didn't want to, but I always thought that if I was going to speak about it or do something special, it was going to be something that I created, that I could control and just come up with something really creative too, which I still might do something really cool at the right time in our world and all of that because it's now truly the anniversary, 25 years. But I decided to go that night to really say thank you because the community has made it what it is and has given it life. It could have just died on a video shelf many years ago if it was as shitty as people said at the time. It has something to it. So I just was like, okay, you know what? This is a moment. And I called my hair and makeup people. Of course, I'm not going there without all that, right? And just said, let's do this. And I sat down and wrote something from my heart and it was just palpable. You could feel it. And it wasn't even about the movie. It was about what was happening that was so incredible. But I was grateful to just say thank you and acknowledge the night and the magic of it. But yeah, no, I wish, see, that would have been such a special time when it did come out first to be able to talk with an actress, like to be able to have sat with you and said, oh my God, can I just tell you what I'm going through? This is crazy. What would you do? Like we all had something like that happen now. I would have been able to speak. Right. I mean, I had really close actor friends that I could talk to, but it was something that I had to just kind of figure out and tolerate and deal with and navigate myself, frankly. And when you're extra vulnerable around something, it's not the safest to commiserate, you know, especially again, going back to that first point we made, like at that age, I was 21 when it came out. And that's the last thing you want to do is totally at that time is to feel that vulnerable. I just wanted to figure out how to overcome it and keep my confidence at the time, which I did figure out, but not easy. When you look back on the shooting of the movie, can you distance yourself from the after effect? Like, do you remember that part fondly? It's an interesting thing, how you feel about something with perspective. I think it's important to kind of figure out how to be discerning about an experience without it being colored by whatever the result is. Exactly. Right? So through the years, it was a big thing. It was a lot. And a lot of doors were shut at the time in the business for me. And I mean, I had to get a new agent and new representation. And because I didn't have a whole body of work from Saved by the Bell to that, you know, I had to prove like that I have the chops because I'd been studying and doing theater forever. I was equity at nine and got my SAG card at nine doing modeling and commercials and taking 17 dance lessons a week growing up. Like it was what I lived it. I breathed it. It was my life. So I never was someone that got handed things. I worked for it. I didn't have family connections. You know, I came from Farmington Hills, Michigan. So I was far from all this, as you can imagine. I mean, you came from Seattle, right? So you get what I mean. It's yeah. You hustle. It's hard. You hustle, you have a dream, and it's about the work. And so for me, it was about just let me get back to the work. I got back in my acting class. My salvation has always been my work and my creativity. So I was like, I'm not going to allow these years, you know, as crazy as that sounds, someone 21 saying year, but my life spent training. I'm not going to allow this singular moment. I somehow had the wisdom to know like, yeah, this isn't about giving up. This is about being resilient and figuring out how to overcome and really like prove that I've got the goods and kind of re-educate in the industry what I'm capable of. Because at the time I got that, I was getting close on a million movies. You know, when it's about to break, close on this, close on this, close on. And then you got the one. 
Yeah. So for me, that was the one that broke. And I figured with that pedigree that I'd be safe and good. But the making of it was a bit like an amazing dream because, I mean, I got to do production numbers and dance. And I know. Like every scene, there's shit happening. (laughs) It was not boring. That sounds like a basic thing to say, but I imagine shooting it. Yes. There was so much about it that was like, this is it. This is what I've dreamed of. Back in dance class, when I would envision that the people in my class were also my chorus, (laughs) I'm finally doing this in a movie. Like you have to hold that vision for yourself. If you don't, no one will in anything. We have to see it first, especially in our business. You have to see it for yourself because otherwise it won't come to you. So yes, most of the making of it was what I had dreamed of. As a young woman, as I was finding my own voice and my own power and knowing how to utilize that, you know, there was such a big thing in our business, especially like teens, early 20s, for sure. And women in our culture, just you're taught to be the good girl and taught to be easy to work with and good to work with and not make a wave. And I mean, that's still in our culture, but it's gotten so much better and it will continue to. And so I think only knowing what I know, I would have stood up for myself or spoken up for myself in some ways in terms of how I was being directed and wanting to understand that more because it went against some of my instinct and and frankly went against the very reason I was cast was the work I did at the screen test. And then the direction of that shifted for the tone of the movie. So it was different than what I thought it was going to be. But I thought, you know what? He must know better. This director just did Basic Instinct. Sharon Stone became the biggest star in the world. This is my first movie I'm going to trust. And so I think that's the big thing that you can only learn with time. I know. I do implicitly trust. And it's a hard thing to gauge. I mean, for me, in my case... I wouldn't know not to because I've never directed. You mean currently, though? Because you're so seasoned. I know a little bit more now, but I was thinking that if you really loved that experience of making showgirls, if that's like finding out that the love of your life has a wife, like I would imagine that would amplify the harshness in terms of emotional pain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, whenever you do a project as an artist, I think you can't help but have a hope or expectation of what it could be or do. And especially with that one, there was such a charge on it. And especially because of the team behind it and the studio, it was MGM and Joe Esterhaz, who was so highly controversial. He was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood at the time. You know, there was so much on it that you couldn't help but have a hope or expectation of what would mean, do, be. Oh my God. Right? So if anything falls short of that, you know, at the time it was like I had my head handed to me on a national level and my heart wanted to know why. I couldn't understand it because I did everything, quote, right. I followed direction and I gave all of myself. Like, I don't do things halfway. I don't love half. I don't work half. If I choose to give of myself to something, someone has all of me. So I think that was the thing that was hardest is to not feel that I was safe in that, in the giving. That feels close to a breakup. You know, that feeling of like, just because the team behind it, like I traveled the world with the movie by myself after it came out. What do you mean? They bailed on the world tour, but I went alone. Oh my God. I made a choice to see that through as a professional. And I also thought it's good for people because I didn't at the time have the body of work for them to really know me. 
I wanted them to meet me. I was still living at home with my parents. I was a good Midwestern girl. I signed on for a movie and nobody like duped me. I'm not a victim here at all. Like I knew what the role entailed and I knew all of what was involved, but it was just kind of shocking. Like, oh, when things don't go right, I didn't realize people just bail. Like that was not something that ever happened in my life. So it was more about not even a movie succeeding or failing. It was like really a life lesson of how to take care of yourself and navigate. I think that was what was so beautiful about watching the speech at the Hollywood Cemetery. And it made me realize that, of course, it's beloved now because you are an integral part of the story, that there is an outside layer of tragedy involving the movie. People love you. And so I think that your heartbreak was felt, perhaps. I don't know. Do you think I'm wrong? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) I don't think at the time. Maybe not at the time. We weren't ready. Yeah, but maybe gradually or maybe people saw in themselves like what I've heard feedback of like, we've all had to fight for something and we've all had to like pick ourselves back up and get on with it Yeah, and figure out how to find our worth in the face of something or someone. I feel like more of the resiliency that we all have to have in life was something that I think, especially the gay community has shared with me, like that's something that they could really feel or that was palpable to them through the real part of the journey, you know? And so I appreciate that. To me, like there's no option. It's like, look at our children, how at a young age, they're learning themes of resiliency, flexibility, pivoting. So yeah, I'm not connecting right now to that movie. I'm connecting just the theme of finding one's resiliency in whatever situation, whatever life throws our way. Right now, it's a collective one. So we can, you know, bond with fellow moms, friends. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The story of Showgirls, though, is kind of the greatest trajectory yeah. of a movie Ever. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen a young actress have to go through that rejection and all that that we all go through. It's a rite of passage. I haven't quite seen something like that brutal. For me, it's part of, I think, why I created Ask Elizabeth. I don't know if you know about that work I do. Yeah. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about it too? Yeah, definitely. In 2006, I created a workshop, an interactive workshop that I facilitate in middle schools and high schools. And I work with the entire female student body on their football field, in their cafeteria, in their auditorium. I'm not standing at a podium telling them how to run their lives. But I think because of what happened so young, I wanted to be of service to provide like a safe space for girls to know they're not alone in the emotional life of a teen girl. And the age range I work with is 11 to 17, but it's peer to peer. I'm facilitating kind of talk show style where there's roving mics. This expression past the mic is something that, you know, I've been doing for 14 years with these girls. I've worked with over 100,000 girls in person. And we have a New York Times bestselling book as well, where I took their most asked questions and wove it together with their stories, wisdom, advice, and then experts. That was exciting too, as a way to give girls a tangible place offline, but like more intimate in book form. I think that's amazing. This has been a mission. It's a mission in my life. I think people serve where maybe they've been hurt. 
And that calling, no doubt, came and was born out of that. I didn't realize it in 2006, what was driving that, but for sure, that's why I was so on a mission with this. It's called Ask Elizabeth. We'll put the information up on our website for our listeners too. Thank you. But Elizabeth, I'm still hung up that you had to go on the press tour alone. (laughs) Would you have met me like in Paris or Germany? God, yeah. We could have had fun. (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. But that must have been a fucking lonely time. It was crazy. It was crazy. So wait, did anyone go with you, like family or friends? My parents met me in a couple countries. Like my mom went to Taiwan. My dad then met us in Germany and New Zealand. And then I did a lot of them alone just with the unit publicist from the studio. I mean, they're lonely ventures anyway. Yes. No, you're on a rock band tour. But usually you get to bring a hair and makeup person that you're close with, hopefully. Right, right. We didn't even have that. But it brought out a fire in me. And it was like, I'll show you. I'll prove it. It's just part of my nature. So I think that fire is the thing that made me not bail. Because I don't bail. I just looked at how can I use it? What's the opportunity here? As you say that, I was about to ask you if you considered yourself a competitive person, but I think that that's an incorrect question because I don't think the two are very comparable necessarily. Yeah. I was going to ask you, oddly, Mm -hmm. if you played sports in high school. No, and I got teased often for doing pirouettes on the tennis court at our school or volleyball or whatever sport we were doing. I just wanted to dance. Like to me, ballet, tap, jazz... Tap and like bossy style jazz are my thing. And then, of course, pole dancing became a new skill. Yeah, I need some lessons. (laughs) Well, I'll brush off the dust. (laughs) So no, I never did competitive sports. Dancing, I was extremely competitive, I'll say. We had these conventions come to town and they would bring professional choreographers to do these like weekend long intensives. I was not going to be in the back of the line in the ballroom that usually it was like at a Hyatt or something like that in these smaller towns that they would tour through. I made sure I was front row. I wanted to be here already at like out of the womb. My parents are not in the industry, no one in my family, but they knew that I had this dream and that I was willing to work hard. And just like my brother, he's a doctor and he worked hard for it. We both just kind of have that work ethic. And I don't know if that's a Midwest thing or what. Did they do a national casting call for Saved by the Bell? Did you audition in Michigan? No, I had commuted for three years. When I was nine, I wrote a letter to Norman Lear and told him he should make me a star. That's incredible. (laughs) I think I was watching the Jeffersons or something. One of many of his shows at that time. I wrote the letter and my mom was like, oh, okay. Um, But instead of laughing, my parents took it seriously. So my mom found the address, mailed it. We got a letter back from Mark Hirschfield, who was like head of casting, his assistant at the time, who now is a huge casting director, and said, you know, this is nine years old. And he was like, we don't need to find talent outside of Michigan, but if you should ever find yourself in California, please give us a call. So we came out there when I was 12 for family vacation, and we called Mark Hirschfield. And he remembered this letter. That's mind-blowing. I came in with a boombox, like a boombox, press play, saying Rainbow Connection. Amazing. And he set me up with my agent I was with from like 12 to 18. So I commuted from 12 to 15. And finally, when my brother went off to college, my parents knew it was inevitable I was moving out here anyway. So we all made the leap together. But for three years, I commuted back and forth for training, auditions, guest spots. I started gradually building. Did you originally audition for Kelly? I did. Well, I think Jenny Garth was also up for it. I think it was down to the three of us. 
And then Brandon Tartikoff, who was amazing, he was the head of NBC. He said they couldn't decide, but he was like, we have to have her. And so Jesse was born. That's how that happened. How would you describe Jesse Spano? The OG, like circa 1990, Jesse, or still? Yeah. And at the time, did you feel like you really loved her? Okay. So total PTSD around wearing Z Cavarici pants. <laughs> what teenage girl would ever want to wear those? Would you? Probably not. No. <laughs> it was the worst. Actually, starting with those, it really was bad. So the outfits, I was really upset about. I'm just telling you, this is so funny because my costume designer from back then, Liz Bass, just DM'd me the other day with a screenshot in the worst, like brown, just disgusting. And she DM'd me with it and she said, I'm so sorry. And I said, Liz, I have PTSD around these pants. You were 15. Yeah, and your body's developing and do you want to wear baggy? Like, no. And I'm a dancer. No, don't put me in those. So anyway, I'm just being silly, but the truth So what I loved about Jessie was that she was outspoken. She was, in retrospect, ahead of her time. She stood up for people. She was an advocate for the planet, for people, for animals, her friends. And I was raised with really strong women. My mom, obviously, being the main influence. And my grandmothers, I mean, I had amazing women around me. So I loved playing her. It was very natural to who I was. And yeah, it was just the outfits. The poofy hair was a reflection of the times, okay? I don't know what to say about that. But that was a diffuser with a can of Shaper hairspray every Friday night because you know, you know how multicam is. So Monday through Thursday, we rehearsed. Friday night, we had a studio audience, which we loved. It was like live theater, which has been a big part of my life for so many years. Through these years, I've done a bunch of Broadway and London theater as well. Do you know Eddie Izzard? Yes, I tore him. He and I starred in the Lenny Bruce story in the West End. Oh, Elizabeth, I didn't know that. Yeah, Sir Peter Hall directed that. Oh, that's incredible. But the craziest Broadway experience I've ever had, and I have not really shared this story, but this is so much fun with you. I saw a show that blew my mind. It was Hurley Burley with Ethan Hawke, Bobby Cannavale, Parker Posey, wow. Wally Shawn. I saw it in January and was blown away. It was my husband and my anniversary. That's what we went to see. And I had been doing some Broadway previously. So I was kind of in that community, but I didn't know any of these cast members. So I went and we left and I was dying. I was like, oh my God, this show is so incredible. And I'm heartbroken. Like, have you ever felt that feeling of like, I don't know what to do because I have to play that part, but someone's in the role. So like, that's it, right? It won't happen. So cut to a few months later, we were at the Tribeca Film Festival. My mentor of mine had passed and there was a documentary about him, Roy London. So I was there with Gary Shandling and a bunch of incredible actors who had studied with him. We did a panel. This is now May. I got a call that they were replacing the actress in the show, Curly Burley. And could I stay and reroute and knock it on the plane and quickly prepare three scenes to do for the director? Three girls were coming in. Oh my God. And he said, if you get this, you have three days to prepare and go on. So are you willing? I mean, I was dying inside, like three days to learn the lines, learn the blocking, meet the cast and go on that Friday night. Anyway, I went to the audition, got it, started learning the lines, got off book, learned all the blocking because I had to do it exactly where they had already set the lighting for. And then I met them and went on that Friday night. And while I'm telling you, I feel like vomiting right now. But in the moment, have you ever had something where you just, you have to rise? There was no time to get in my head and think. It was like, it's here, go. 
And so like that was one of those moments in life. Yes, it's about work, but it was one of those where it's just trusting yourself, trusting that the work is there all the years and years of doing this. It's a feeling that's very much akin to jumping off like a 10 meter diving board or something. Yes, totally. A hundred percent. You're not getting pushed. You have to make that choice. Yes. <sighs> yes. But there's also no ladder to get back down. No, that's it. Because you had it removed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the night I went on when I was in the wings and I'm hearing my cue, like it's it's coming. It's coming. There's no take two. There's no like, wait, I'm not sure. I just remember like no one really pushed me out, but it was almost this imaginary sensation that someone gave me a nudge. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an incredible cast. I mean, those actors are amazing. And so we ended up having a great rest of the run. But it was one of those that years and years of working on your craft, whatever it may be, I don't care what anyone does. They have their own business, entrepreneur, medical school. I'm not comparing acting to saving lives, obviously, but just that test in yourself to go, this is it. And thank God I haven't been slacking because I'm being called to like step up right now. And we do, we get called and called to do these things in life over and over in different ways. It's one of the most thrilling things in life, I think, when you land it. When the voice in your head that knows how you want to deliver the line is communicating well with your vocal cords in your mouth. Yes, and then it actually comes out. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you're so right. It's so satisfying and so fulfilling. And I think that's what keeps us in this crazy business. Those moments are so deeply fulfilling. Yes that we're in it for the next round of it. Totally. It's sick and great. Elizabeth, <laughs> I would love for you to teach me how to tap dance. Are you serious? Or pole dance. <laughs> I have tap shoes. What? From what? Tell me. My future mother-in-law gave me tap shoes because she's been taking it up. And I took it as a kid. Yeah. And I loved it. I love that. But you'll be amazed with how uncoordinated I am. Did she get you ones with heels or flats or? I have flats. Okay. As a kid, I had a little heel, which I found a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Like that pitch, you like being a little... Yeah. Are you a heel girl? No. Okay. But just when you dance, you like being a little elevated. I love it when you say when I dance as if I dance frequently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What was your living arrangement like when you first lived on your own? Well, I have to tell you when I moved out, I was sad. I have incredible parents and they, in our living arrangement there, like I said, I was still living at home when I was <laughs> doing showgirls. I kind of had a bedroom on the bottom floor. So I felt like I had a lot of freedom. I wasn't in a hurry to get out of the house. I didn't have that drive. I felt like I had my independence and my autonomy. But then it was time. You know, it was just time. A good guy friend of mine had a great apartment and he was moving into a house. And I always said to him, if you leave this and you want to rent it, like I'm in. And that's what happened. So it was a two bedroom apartment and I loved it. In LA, where in LA? Yeah, it was, I guess, Beverly Hills area. It was near Doheny and it had a booth. Do you guys have a booth there? Kind of. Or is that a couch? It's a couch. It's a built-in couch. Okay, okay. So it was a built-in kind of couch with like a round table and I loved it. Friends came over and it was a great place. And it was closer because we had lived further out. And I was driving every day in Calabasas. So I was in town and not driving around with everything in my trunk, like during the days of auditioning and doing all of that. Thomas Guide. Oh, stop. Can you imagine? 
I had to pull over. Worst sense of direction. Thank God for what we can do now. I'm grateful for the Thomas Guide. I'm resentful towards a younger generation <laughs> who didn't have to like go. But because you get such a sense of the city in a way that you don't with. Yeah, I just got lost all the time. I take good direction. I have no sense of direction. So yeah, that was my first experience living on my own. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I would love to live in Paris for a while. I've lived in London when I did the play with Eddie for almost a year, totally on my own. And that was incredible. And then my husband is a fashion designer. So we do spend a lot of time in Paris for him when he's showing or doing business. And I just love it so much. Yeah, I would love to live there for a little bit. What talent or ability would you most like to have? I would love to be fluent in French or another language. I mean, the things that I've chosen, I love so deep, you know, dance, singing, acting. I'm lucky and grateful to get to do those things. But yeah, I would love to learn another language for sure. Me too. Yeah. Oh, how did you meet your husband? We met through a very, very dear girlfriend of mine. And she kept saying to me, God, when I'm around him, I just feel like he's the male you. Like you guys have got to meet at some point. But I was gone for nine months. And when I came back, sure enough, we were in a dance class. It was called Movement for Actors. And he was acting at the time. And when I came back, we met in the mirror doing ribcage isolations. Like literally, it was so cheesy and amazing. And from that night on, that was it. I swear, that was it. And we've been together 20 years. That's incredible, Elizabeth. It's crazy, 20 years ago, but yes. Congratulations, that is beautiful. That's really beautiful. Thank you, thank you. He's good to the bone. That's the kind of man you need. Yeah, for sure. And he's really, really talented and we're definitely inspired by each other's creativity and like have each other's backs in that we want the best for each other. Yeah, grateful for that. I love that. Okay, what is a trait you dislike in others? Hmm. Well, there are a few. I mean, dishonesty, I have no tolerance for that. Cruelty of any kind. Yeah, those would be the biggest. What's a trait you dislike in yourself? I can be too hard on myself sometimes. I'm working on being more compassionate and gentle. I'm a Leo. While I'm soft in some ways, I can be hard on myself. That kind of perfectionistic stuff. I've worked on it for a lot of years. (laughs) And when you asked me about Jesse, it's a funny thing. Like, She had that. And it was interesting revisiting a role that I played as a teen with certain issues and themes and now revisiting as a woman, Tracy Wakefield, who's our showrunner that you would love. She did 30 Rock. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of hers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, really. I've never collaborated with a woman in this way. And Tracy specifically is incredible. One of the things we had to fill in was, okay, what has been her journey? Like, here's what she was as an adolescent. Even if you're not going to see it in an episode, we have to build it in so we know what has she accomplished, number one, because she had a singular vision for herself, Jesse. But then who is she now? Besides the fact that, you know, her personal life is a bit of a mess when we see her. She is a mom. She's returned to school as the guidance counselor, which was so in alignment with my Ask Elizabeth world. Yeah. But really to kind of fill in what did she work on or what did she not get to yet? Because as humans, we still have some of those themes that reoccur and repeat until we get it. Anyway, it was interesting to kind of figure that out for her character. Again, even if it's not a script or story point, it's embedded in the DNA of this character that people knew so well. You know, as a producer on the show as well, when we were saying about being protective, I was protective for all our original characters, but then also really excited about this new group. I love that because I work the same way. I really like to know 
just like you said, even if it's not referenced, it's important for me to know exactly what my character has been up to, you know. Yeah, because it informs your behavior, Completely. Right? Your level of confidence, your stature. And Jessie is accomplished. Yes. She has her PhD. She's a New York Times bestselling author for parenting books. And she has done TED Talks and been involved in politics. But I mean, it's a comedy after all. And so I think it's fun how Tracy set her up to, while she's accomplished those things, she is a helicopter parent. She is trying to navigate this terrible relationship. Cheyenne Jackson plays Jesse's husband, Renee. I don't want to give anything away, but there's great chemistry still with Slater. We'll leave it at that. Oh, good. All right. All right. I love it. You can see some stuff happening. Still there. Yeah. <laughs> Can I add one more little thing? This is about the new kids on our show. I like to share this because I just want to say how special they are because our show is all about the core of the kids at school. They're all, for the most part, newcomers. And I just wanted to acknowledge like being a part of the casting process. This was the first time as a producer for me. So being involved from that angle, every single session, first of all, I learned a lot. One of the things I'm really blown away by, while our kids are like 19 to late 20s, so they're at a different phase of life than we were when we did our show. But, you know, being a part of every single step of casting was important to me. And that dynamic at the core is why people fell in love with our show, like the connections. And this dynamic between them is so special. I was sitting at the HR meeting before we began the show. You know, this is a new thing in our industry. And I remember just kind of sitting there and I was telling you earlier that I, you know, had to find my voice and to stand up for oneself. And the scenarios the woman listed at HR were so ridiculous to this new group that that could ever happen. Like they thought it was so absurd that anyone would ever have to deal with that or tolerate these things. And I was so inspired by the fact that this gets to be a new narrative in our business in a new journey where, you know, some of the things that we had to overcome and deal with and navigate that seem normal. To them is like inconceivable. Yeah. So on a front of both their talent, but then also like this is such an exciting time. It's like a game changer, but also a game changer for anyone that came up before now. It's just thrilling, you know, to see like what we get to do as women. Yeah. When you said that you learned a lot, will you elaborate a little bit on that? One of the biggest things that actually was incredible, I've been in situations where I've been cast first and done chemistry reads where different actors come in in that capacity. But this was different where just one after the next, you're just seeing everyone for these six main roles. We have, by the way, Michael Higgins on the show too, who's a genius. He's great. But what was so clear and such a gift as an actor to see is that no matter how prepared or skilled or charismatic or beautiful, at the end of the day, sometimes that person who had all those check marks was not right. And I wanted to call every actor who came in who did an excellent job, but just wasn't right for that part or wasn't suddenly right. Like once we had the four other people to see who would kind of mix with that great chemistry. And it strangely was healing for me of years of like, you know, let's say beating myself up or second guessing or all those things we do when we don't get it. And no one ever tells you, like for anyone listening to this, you can go in, audition, you can be brilliant and you just hear other going a different way. And maybe you don't know what that other way is until the person is on the screen. You're right. It's unlike sports or like if you run track or something, it's like you have no way to gauge your yeah. audition process precisely. No, because if you win the race, like it's clear you won because of your speed. There's no other criteria. 
that's something that was so clear to me. And it just kind of healed like 20 years of any times I was so hard on myself or questioned myself or second guessed. Even when they just come in and say hello, and you obviously hope at hello that they're as good as the hello. And in our case, luckily, everyone is so skilled and so great and professional. And it was something really unique to like see how the dynamics come together. And we have such an incredible diverse cast. And it's something that I hope to not put a spotlight on in the future as being something so special or unique. It should just be. Mm-hmm. I mean, our show deals with that race, privilege, Kids coming from a different school, being bused to this kind of school in the Palisades, kids whose you know, socioeconomic backgrounds are different and they're dealing with that head on as comedy, but still getting to really deal with like thoughtful things right now in the culture. Yeah, I feel lucky to be on a show that like deals with these themes. And I bet those kids are really fortunate to have you as a producer and as a mentor. Well, I'm there if they need me. And at the same time, I don't want to impose anything either because, you know, there's a difference. Like we were babies. We were 15, right? So if you're in your 20s, you might not want to hear. Uh-huh. I do remember like when I did First Wives Club with Goldie Hawn, I wanted to know everything from her. Like I was at a moment, like I just wanted to be a sponge because I was reflecting like, oh, what was my job at their age? Like what was one of the jobs that I was able to look to someone older and more seasoned? And so I got to have that woman. I got to ask her a million questions. She and Diane Keaton and Bette Midler, they were it for me. That's amazing. These three comedic geniuses. But if they have a question, I'm there. And if not, like I'm getting to learn from them too. It's a give and take with these kids. So it's fun. That's so cool, Elizabeth. Okay. Do you have a greatest regret? I don't. I really don't. I don't either yet. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Knock on wood. I mean, you think that that's because you've chosen to not look at things that way? Because I think that that's a choice, regret. I often think about how I'm really flaky, how while I think about the people I love a lot, they might not consider me the most thoughtful person. I can be very generous in moments, but I can be neglectful about that stuff. So I don't know. As I was thinking about greatest regret, it's like... But generous pertaining to giving something or giving of yourself? Both. Okay. But it's not consistent. Like, I don't think any of my friends would describe me as like the person who would pick them up at the airport. I think I'm pretty good with emotional support when you can get me. Mm Mm-hmm. But do you think any part of that is the life that you've led, like going from, let's say, movie to movie or the grind of a long running series or like it doesn't really set oneself up to be able to be as available, right? I think, too, like when I talk on the phone, I'll talk to somebody for two hours. Yeah. And then I won't call them for months. Or even maybe I won't really respond to their texts. Or a classic thing is like, I'll get a text from somebody I haven't heard from for a long time. And I won't read it because I know that I want to actually call them and a text doesn't feel appropriate enough. Right. So then months later, I truly have 337 unread text messages, Elizabeth. No. I really do. So I'm not texting you then. We have to figure out a different means of communication. (laughs) No, but you know what? But also with good friends, like I bet though, if someone said to you, I need you. Yes. You're going to pick it up. Yeah. Okay. So your good friends probably just know and accept it, right? I've established a pattern for years now. So (laughs) if they're still willing to be in my life, then. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And, you know, not knowing you that well, but just feeling you like at the end of the day, if someone said before the sun sets today, I need to talk to you because X and X is going on. You're going to figure it out. Yeah, I hope so. So if the day-to-day, whatever maintenance of things is not your thing, like then people have to understand that who love you and 
I think at this point of life too, as moms, you only have so much time, right? There's your work life, your love, your child. So there's like the pie chart of where your time and energy goes. That gets less and less of who are you going to nurture and what are you going to nurture? For me, I don't need that many friends. I know a lot of people, but like, who am I really? It's one hand, right? Yeah, I think so. Has a stranger ever changed your life? Mm, That's a great question. It's funny. I don't know if it changed my life, but it was like a magical moment. It was in New York probably 25 years ago. And I have not thought of this in so many years. So it makes me almost want to cry. I was on the Upper East Side and there was a very, very old woman. And I know you're not supposed to go home with strangers, but this woman, she was in her 80s. She seemed disoriented and she told me where she lived. And I took her back there and she made me scrambled eggs. And we talked about her life and we called her family. And I haven't thought of it in that amount of years, but that woman, I can't explain quite how she changed my life, but it was a moment in exchange and it was magical and it obviously felt safe. I would not do that now. There was just something about her and I got to talk to her family and they thanked me for getting her home and I don't even know what her name is. That's an amazing story, Elizabeth. Yeah, she made me scrambled eggs on this beautiful, like mismatched dishes. I'm just picturing the kitchen right now. She was really precious. Obviously, I think every exchange can change us. And that was one that I'm not sure how to articulate how she did, but it did. All right. When or where are you happiest or most content? I don't care where we are with my husband and my son, period. I love that. I feel the same way. How can you not? I love that. All right. Do you have a favorite joke? I don't. I don't. (laughs) This is always a crapshoot. And I'll ask like stand-ups. They're like, no. (laughs) No, I really don't. But I do have friends who have these running jokes that like for years they continue to tell at dinner parties. and I do not. I've gotten really good though at during this time when it's time for lunchtime on Zoom for my son. I have a book of knock knock jokes that I got on Amazon and I put it with the lunch so he can like read it to the buddy who he's having lunch with on Zoom. So jokes have become a part of our daily, but I can't remember the last one that he read. There's just sweet and silly and kind of add a little burst of something. Right now I'm looking for the bursts to bring to the table because... Right now, we've got to bring some of that. I know. I act like a juvenile around my son, and he has been a little bit bratty to me lately because I'm like his only play partner right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, they've had their little autonomy at school. Yeah. Right? And now, yeah, they're home with us. Yeah. That's so funny. But it's awesome. I wouldn't trade it for the world in that. No. The time together. Yeah. It's been amazing. Someday I'll have the words to sum up the last eight months for me, but it has been a time of a lot of reflection. Definitely. A lot of people are in survival mode, but at the same time in that fight or flight, I'm so curious to see how we're all already changed and how we then come out on the other side as well. 100%. What would your younger self not believe about your life today? These are so good. Oh my God. I think that it's better than I thought it would be. What a beautiful answer. I would also tell my younger self, like, relax, it's going to unfold and be better than you think it's going to be. Yes, you're 100% right. Yeah. Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Right now, the dream dinner party is all the loved ones that I can't see right now. That would be such a joy. That's a beautiful answer. In one word, how would you like to be remembered? 
Do you know what it is for you? No. This is hard. This one's hard. I know. I was thinking about this because I asked this question to a lot of people. I wonder if there's something around the idea of conviction Mm. for me. Mm. But of course, you know, kind, loving. Yeah. I love the idea if I didn't have to describe myself, if somebody else described me as remarkable. Right. I love that. (laughs) I love that. But it's a little arrogant. (laughs) No. I think the person right there would say that right now. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I don't know just what the word love. Yeah, love. I want them to remember me as love. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you are loving and you're lovely. Thank you. Oh, I very much mean it, Elizabeth. Thank you. Elizabeth. Yeah. What's the meaning of life? (laughs) (laughs) You're killing me here. (laughs) I know. No, they're so good. And the meaning of life is to give love, be love, and offer hope. That's the best answer I've heard. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Alex Katahakis, who is an author, psychotherapist, and the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex here in Los Angeles. You can learn more about Dr. Alex and our other experts at unqualified.com. Hi again, Dr. Alex. It's great to see you. Hi, Anna. It's really nice to see you again. All right. Let's call Emily. Hello? Hi, Emily. Hi, how are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. Emily, I'm here with Dr. Alex Katahakis. She is a psychotherapist, a leader in the field of integrative sex therapy, and the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. And I say words and make faces for a living. So that's my... That's my qualification. Um, Emily, will you, tell, will you tell us what's going on? Okay. So I've been with my partner for a little over a year and a half, and we've been um, living together for about six months of, of that time. And overall, we have a great relationship. I think the best relationship that both of us have been in. You know, we have similar sense of humor and we have overall good communication and we have the same interests, but also 
kind of have our, you know, our independence when COVID isn't happening. So it's, it's great. But when we first got together, we were having sex, you know, like two or three times a week. And I'm a fairly sexual person. So, you know, I like to have sex often. And so it seemed like, oh, okay, we're on the same page. Basically, it started to kind of dwindle a little bit. And I, you know, at first was worried like, oh, is he, you know, interested in someone else? You know, does he not find me attractive? And so I confronted him about it. Um, And at first, you know, he was kind of, um, you know, defensive. Um, But eventually, he was like, well, I take Viagra because I have like performance anxiety. So basically, it's like he can get an erection, but then he apparently has trouble maintaining it because he overthinks things and starts his mind kind of wanders, kind of a worrier. (laughs) I had never like up until that point experienced any of that, but he, you know, explained like, oh, well, when we were first hanging out and we would have dates, he would just take it, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to see each other. So we're probably going to have sex. And, you know, of course, like as a relationship progresses, you don't have sex like as much, but I guess I was kind of worried I was definitely like oh that's it you know like that's not a big deal it's fine but it didn't really change it was like so are you gonna like take the pill you know like we would see each other and we wouldn't have sex and I don't know I was just kind of like is that really it or is it something else and I feel like as it's gone well he was basically like you should just you can just like tell me like if you want to have sex like hey will you take a pill and I just feel like that kind of (laughs) isn't as uh like spontaneous and romantic as I would like I kind of just don't like feeling like I have to ask for that so I don't know I'm just kind of like in this awkward space Emily I've been in a couple relationships where I wanted to have sex more than my partner did and it was hard for me and confusing because we're adjusted in our society through all the messaging that we get that men are supposed to be the aggressor. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Dr. Alex has a lot of thoughts on this, but I do want you to know that you're not alone. I don't know. It's like, it will be in these situations where I'm like, ooh, this is like heading towards some like sex. And then it like doesn't happen. And I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? Like you kind of like set it up in your head, like, oh, you know, maybe we're going to like do it tonight or whatever, you know? And it's like, you're feeling yourself. And then yeah, we're on the same wavelength here, and I guess not. And I don't really like to ask. And he's very giving, like with oral sex, you know, and which is great. But also at the same time, it's like when he goes, he'll go down on me, and then I'm like, okay, well, you know, you have an erection, so do you want to go for it? And it's like, no, I'm good. I think so. Part of that too is is difficult because I like to be also the one that's like giving, you know. It like turns me on to have him get off. And so if it's that way for him as well, then it's like, we got to meet in the middle, you know, it's tough. Dr. Alex, what are your thoughts here? Hi, Emily. Hi. (laughs) So nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah. Nice to meet you too. How old are you and your partner? Uh, We're both 35. Okay. So it sounds like he definitely has um, performance anxiety and he struggles with erectile dysfunction And that's something that he can look into, that he can get some help from. When he really starts to look at his anxiety and why he's in his head about sex all the time. And it's interesting that you have this idea of spontaneity, which I think a lot of people have, which is partially true and partially absurd. So 
why is it so horrible to decide that you guys want to have sex a couple times a week and to say to him, what if at noon today, Thursday, you were with him and you were having a good time or you kissed him and you said, you know, I'd really love to have sex with you tonight or fuck you tonight or make love with you, whatever kind of language you use. Mm-hmm. Would you mind taking a pill around six o'clock or whenever he needs to take it and and make that part of your foreplay instead of judging it or making it feel awkward for you? I, well, the thing is, is like I did that obviously like once, uh, you know, and then I quit, but it, he was like, no, I don't like, I'm not really, I don't really want to tonight. And so then I, I don't know, that made it even more where I was like, okay, well, I don't, it's like the rejection, you know, that I was like, okay, well, I guess I won't do that again. Well, then when will he want to have sex? If he doesn't want to do it tonight, I think this is a question for him. Like, how will I know when it's okay to ask you? How will I know when you want to have sex since you don't want to take a pill every night, but only when we're going to be sexual? Help me understand how to talk to you about this. Yeah. Emily, let's say if the amount of sex you're having right now continued, you know, once every two or three weeks, maybe. I'm not quite sure how often you have sex. I mean, we it's like once a week. I mean, it seems to be when shit's going on in the world, which is like all the time. It, he's like more distracted, which, you know, makes sense. I'm not feeling as horny as I, you know, have before either. It's generally like once a week or sometimes once every like couple weeks. I feel like if it was every like three weeks, I don't know if I could handle that. Because again, like he will, it's like, I still get, I get off, you know, he's more than willing to go down on me, but it's me like wanting to have more of that intimacy. It's like not the same when he's farther away, you know, he's down there instead of, it's not as intimate, you know, as like him penetrating me or, you know, having him close to me. I just don't like having to make it this big ask we're built differently and it comes down to just like the sex drive is just not the same well surely he's had this experience in other relationships then oh yeah and he's talked about that yeah Mm -hmm. and he said that it's been an issue and i'm like maybe there i just feel like maybe there's something else going on that he just doesn't even maybe know about or doesn't want to talk about does he finish yeah Mm mm-hmm there's times where you can tell that he's maybe overthinking it and then his erection will go away. But it's like, if you just like give it a little bit, you know, wait a little while, then it's fine. Dr. Alex, I'm so like out of my elements here, but do you have a lot of patients or clients where the male partner doesn't like to finish in a, a vagina? Not a lot, but yes, I've certainly seen that where men who just cannot ejaculate when they're inside a female. That's what like, like physically, they just, yeah, they, they just can't because, because the they've got, yeah, they've got all kinds of aversions and feelings about that. But um, that doesn't sound like what's going on here. I mean, he's young. Yeah. He, well, he also doesn't, he likes to pull out and then ejaculate, which Is I that- kind of like too. So that's, kind of okay that's fine like I like it (laughs) yeah so I have no like I don't care where he does it it's just Mm -hmm. you know it's he does finish every time it's never like it doesn't come to completion or whatever if you will 
Well, the problem is his anxious connection, his anxious attachment style, if you will, that when you're having sex, what's going on between the two of you? Are you making eye contact? Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm saying, that's why I was like, so it was confusing to me at first because I was like, this is, it's good sex. Mm -hmm. So he's able to stay connected to you. Yes. Yes. Like he's looking at me, kissing me, you know, it's not unless, you know, it's like if I ask him, like, turn around, you know, can I turn around or whatever, you know, I mean, he's very open, like, he's very responsive, like, to my body and what's going on. But I feel like it's like he still can be in his own head. Right. So he's not really present with you. That's my point. Yeah. And I'm saying maybe that's not all the time, but it's, yeah. Like that's on his end that he's told me because I didn't even notice it. Like, I'll be like, oh, okay. What's, you know, I didn't realize he wasn't present. So what does he know about his anxiety? Has he talked to you about that? Yeah, he, I mean, he definitely has anxieties and he has depression. Um, He takes medication for it. Oh, that might be a thing too, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, that's what I was like, oh, well, that's obvious. Like, that's probably part of it because those medications can certainly do that. But he's never said it's because of the medication. He said it's because he overthinks it. Like, he has a fear that he won't be able to to continue to maintain the erection. But then I'm like, if that's, I mean, I've told him, like, at least try. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to be upset if it doesn't stay hard and I'm okay with it. You got to at least try. Not trying at all is worse than you starting something and not being able to finish or whatever, you know. Right. And it sounds like for you, you're not going to be angry or upset if he loses his erection that you're really willing to kind of go with the flow of whatever's going on. Yeah. It's not like the act, like it has to be like, we both need to finish and we both, you know, I want that intimacy. It's like the feeling of being wanted and desired. Yeah. So it sounds like he's in his own way and there's not a whole lot you can do to get him out of his own way other than give voice to what you want and what you need. And he has to work this out somehow. It just seems like it's so hard to, it's hard to, for me to make him understand like, this isn't really normal. Like you don't have to feel this way. And he's gone to therapists before, and I, I don't know if this was a big topic that he was working through. I don't necessarily know exactly what it was, but I'm just like, sometimes a part of me is like, is there like a deep trauma that I don't know about? Or again, like maybe he doesn't even really fully understand, you know, it's manifesting itself in this situation. I imagine, Emily, that you wouldn't want to be having the same amount of sex five years from now. No. Like I said, it's like, I'm not even as horny as I used to be with everything else. (laughs) You know, we're all kind of just like, eh, not feeling it so much, but. I wonder if, Emily, you might go back to saying, this is what I need and this is what I like. And I wonder if there's a way to kind of put it back in his court. Dr. Alex? Yeah, that's an interesting idea is leaving it to him, Emily, and saying, look, why don't you just take the pill three times a week and surprise me? Let me know what, you know, I won't know what day of the week you've taken it. And so I don't want to put pressure on you, but this is what I'd like. I'd love this. And um, so you do it when you feel like it's right for you. And then come find me. That's a great idea. 
right? Yeah, because I'm always game. Right. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I Emily. I'm like, I don't care. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm down. I'm down. So, yeah, that's a good idea. So that way he doesn't feel like, oh, I have to do like tonight, I have to do it. You know, she's expecting it. Yeah. You won't even know. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'll be like, whoa, hi. Yeah. Emily, I wonder if you can ask him if there's other things you guys can do that is also stimulating for him that he hasn't explored yet. Right. I think that's great. Like, Dr. Alex, what would you say, Jeff? Like, what are some... Well, what Anna would say is sex toys. You know, when someone has difficulty with erectile issues, anxiety and being in your head is one thing. But oftentimes people can have pelvic floor issues where their pelvic floor is too tight or not tight enough. And maybe anal stimulation would be super arousing to him. Um, so if you considered some sex toys mm. and to experiment with things that help him feel more aroused, less anxious, you know, and this has to do with trusting you also and the quality of your conversations around sex. Uh, but there is a book I really want to recommend that you have him get. It's called Coping with Erectile Dysfunction. And you can find it on Amazon. And it's a terrific book. It's a little bit of a workbook. It will have him looking at his anxiety related to sex and then things, exercises the two of you can do together. Okay, that's great. So what are his sexual fantasies? What turns him on? Well, you know, it's funny that you were talking about like the anal play because I've tried to get in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, <laughs> like we take baths. I think that kind of makes him... I take a bath like every day. Like I get home, it's kind of like a ritual now where I just like get, let's take a bath, have a drink. Um, and he, it's cute because he's like, I have never like took bath before you because like, I mean, now I get like this awesome view <laughs> in, the bath, in the bathtub. So I try to like do that because I feel like that kind of, kind of gets him going a little, you know, like the bath. So. Yeah. So to really talk about that and ask about it, you know, a lot of guys, hetero guys are homophobic about their rectums. They think if they like anal play, they must be gay. It's like the most ridiculous equation one of the most ridiculous ones on the planet, um, because the prostate is incredibly arousing when stimulated. So that whole region is highly arousing for most if people can get out of their heads about their ideas about it and what it means. Yeah, Dr. Alex. Get in there. (laughs) But I don't think you should be invading his rectum without his permission either. Oh, fine. I'm not going to, like, slip it in when he's, you know, in me or anything. But, no, I I have tried. I'm like, let me just kind of put a finger in there. And he was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. But I don't know. I think maybe we should re-explore it because maybe we just need more lube or something. (laughs) Yeah, lube is super important. Yeah. These are great suggestions. Thank you. There's a company that makes couple of vibrators called WeVibe. And um, part of the vibrator is in the rectum and this, you know, can also be vaginally. So the couple is using it at the same time. So you can look at their products also, and maybe you can look at those together. So he knows I have like a dildos and vibrators, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know. I haven't, and I don't know why. I've never suggested that he use it on me. Do you think that's a good oh, idea? Oh, that's like hot. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
again, I want, it's nice to like have him kissing me. Of course, like he's like really good at oral sex. Again, it's like, I still miss that kind of intimacy of him being near me, like near my face and kissing me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess maybe I could suggest that he use like the the vibrator or the dildo and then I can get kind of the best of both worlds and the pressure is off of him. I think it's great news that he loves being sexual with you. I love a good foreplay, but I also want to be filled. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, you just, I don't know. It's just like that desire. Like, I was like crushed at first. I thought that we were just, this was like, could not be the most, like more perfect relationship. Oh. Because we were just having like the right amount of sex that I wanted. And and then it was like, oh, okay. I mean, honestly, I was a little angry at first. I was like, I feel like I was a little bit like misled and <laughs> how this is gonna, you know, how, how it's gonna Yeah. Work. I mean, I was worried about this when I first heard your story. I was like, uh-oh, did she move in with the wrong guy? Exactly. And I will admit, like at first, I, I didn't understand because you, you do have this like preconceived notion that like men are just these horny, like sex crazed people walking around you know and they can't help but want to like fuck all the time but that's just not I know I mean it took me a little bit to be like what like you so you don't want to have sex with me all the time like it was definitely disheartening ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Right. And that's his individual therapy work, by the way, to look at what is that paranoia? Why is he in his head? What kind of situation did he grow up in that he's got this much anxiety? So there's a perfectionism there sometimes. Or is there guilt? Well, Well, that's what I was wondering, like the guilt thing, because he's mentioned like, there's a meme out there that's like after men masturbate, and it's like they look like it's like this picture is like a sad clown or something. And it's like women after women masturbate, it's like you know, like the Nicole Kidman like post Tom Cruise divorce like picture where you know you're like feeling so great. And I was like, is that how you feel after you like jerk off? You know, like I didn't realize that. Well, that sounds that sounds like shame. 
but where does that come from? Well, that would be some sort of family of origin issue. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the person was sexually abused. They may have grown up in a shame-based household where sex was shamed or they had a very perfectionistic parent where you had to be perfect about everything. I mean, it can be any number of dynamics that took place in the family that would have a kid being that anxious and that translating into adulthood also. And he suffers from depression. So he's got some mental health struggles that he really should be addressing in therapy because again, you know, Viagra was developed originally for old men. It wasn't made for young men. A 35 year old man is a vital male sexually. So something is going on. On his right, actually, the medication he takes for depression is going to impact his sexual drive because they just do. They have side effects. So I'm going to be honest. Like when you're first in a relationship, you like do a little snooping, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like medicine cabinet. And so I was like, oh, he takes Viagra. And I was, my first assumption was like, oh, it's because he has anti- he's on antidepressants. Like that makes total sense. And so when he was telling me that this is this is the reason why I you know I take Viagra because and I thought it was going to be because I can't get hard stay hard whatever because of the medication that I'm on and he didn't say that it was just not the answer that I was expecting you know I thought that that's what he was going to say it could very well be a combination you know maybe the maybe the medication is exacerbating some issues that maybe he had but I wouldn't discount, I mean, like some of those medications are pretty powerful. I'm surprised that he's, he's not taking that into account as well. Well, that's what I've, I've brought it up to. I'm like, also you're on antidepressants. So don't put this all on yourself. It's like you're physically like, it's obviously affecting it. Emily, you wrote in your email and you've told us that you have brought it up. It's not like you haven't been communicating these concerns to your partner but I wonder how you can communicate in a more effective way, I guess, that wouldn't upset him or lead to places of defensiveness. Yeah. In our earlier conversations, Emily, Dr. Alex talks about how women are like in their sexual prime in like 35 to 40. Right. The prime of Miss Jean Brody. And maybe he should yeah, like, know. I feel like I want to have sex like all the time. Like, I'm right. Yeah. Horny. That's like, right. And so it's hurtful when you yeah. feel like, uh, like, I'm like, oh, man, I thought we were going to be, like, boning all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, because that's what we were doing at first. Uh, you know, of course, he's a wonderful man. It's like, I don't want to make him feel ashamed that or there's, there's something, like, wrong with him. But I also want him to, like, take a maybe a responsibility. Yeah. If you add the, a little bit of that information in, it makes it about your needs as opposed to his inadequacy. And I think telling him how happy sex with him makes you feel. I did say that, you know, even if if we don't have sex, I would love it if you would just at least tell me like, you look fucking good today. Like you look like you like, you know, you look beautiful. Like I I still need these kind of like words of affirmation. (laughs) Sure. You know, if I'm not physically getting it, like please at least tell me that you do want me, you do desire me. Maybe you can't always like physically do that, but, and he has been trying to do that. Like I can tell he's like consciously like, oh yeah, I shouldn't say that to her, <laughs> you know, but. Yeah. Emily, I, I think that you should 
with gentleness say these things. If it's like, honey, really, this is what I need. And I really want to work on this together. Well, and I feel like when I've said in the past, like, oh, I need, like, I need that. I think he maybe has taken it as I need to come. And, and so it's like, I'm, you know, he's like, I'm happy to go down on you. I love going down on you, but that's not like what that is to me every time. Like, it's like, sure, sometimes I just need to like, get off, but it's the intimacy that I need. It's like the desire, like someone desires you that they physically need to be with you, in you, whatever, you know? Right. But if your partner has a mood disorder, if he's got anxiety and depression, He's working against that and his body's not responding. And that's something I think you have to be in reality about. Because honestly, when I read this, you know, what you sent also, I thought, wow, you haven't been in this relationship that long. And you want to be careful about, you know, bending over backwards constantly to try to accommodate and fix and make this work out until you start to feel like, you know, you're swimming upstream in a way. So you've got to make some hard decisions here about, is this really the right relationship for you? He's got to face this. He's got to do a lot of work to make this change. There's only so much you can do. You know, you can be the sexiest, most beautiful woman. You can, you know, strip for him every night and do cartwheels. But if he's not doing the work to meet you, then you're going to get exhausted by this. Right. Dr. Alex, what was the name of the book again? It's called Coping with Erectile Dysfunction. So, Dr. Alex, is this something that you, I guess part of my call was to just get reassurance that this is something, this is something that you hear about often, or am I just, I just don't want to feel like alone. (laughs) No, no, no. I don't think it's unusual. I mean, there are plenty of couples where, you know, the guy struggles with either premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction. And these are mostly anxiety disorders when they're not organic, when the person doesn't actually have something physically wrong with them. And typically when you see this in guys in their, you know, 20s and 30s, it's anxiety. When you see it in a guy who's 50 or 60, it's he's 50 or 60. Like, yeah, he's physically incapable of doing it. Right. And so that's what Viagra was designed for, was for older men, for performance. But this is a different matter now. Yeah, it's like not this quick fix pill that you can just give to people who have mentally. Well, it's a, he's got mood issues, it sounds like. So he really should be doing his own work around this. He should be trying to crack this code, not you. Certainly you can help if he says, look, I need you to put your hand this way or use this pressure or this rhythm. Yeah, you can certainly do all of that, but you can't be the one who's primarily trying to you know, figure this out. Like get it going. I can't yeah. exactly because well, that's the thing is like when it happens, it's great. Of course, it's great. It's like what? Just get get into it, man. <laughs> right. It'll wear down your self esteem if you are the one who's primarily carrying the energy for change here. That's totally yeah. what happened to me. Yeah. Uh, is it? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I was in those relationships, I was in like my late teens and twenties. And so I was already like, you know, consumed with insecurity in general, but it made me feel that I wasn't attractive, all those things, all those things. And I wanted to be proactive 
And like I think Dr. Alex said, you can only sort of do so much before I think your partner needs to examine some things as well. I wonder though if maybe a first step is, should Emily read this book? No, 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 because that's more the same. That's more of her trying to jumpstart his engine. She can say to him, look, I had this conversation or I found out about this book. Would you be interested in getting it and reading it? And they can read it together, but he needs to buy it. He needs to make the overture to get it. She can't be the one who's coming home like Santa Claus with a sack full of, you know, like books, (laughs) sex toys, lingerie, right. Coping with erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. He has to make the moves to help himself. But Emily, you can explain to him your needs and the just reiterating the idea of like, I really want to work on this and let's do this. Don't you think like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess some of the thing that I, I'm like, you know, Dr. Alex, you're talking about like, is this something that's going to be like that you can deal with long-term and, you know, I mean, I guess that's a fear in any relationship, but like, it's like red flag, red flag. But I guess I am having trouble of course, it's like something that I'm interested in trying to work on. And I don't know, I want to say fix, but everything else is like so great. I don't want to lose a relationship that's great and pretty much every other aspect is like perfect. Sure. Well, I think you have an opportunity here to help him and to say to him, look, I'm crazy about you. I think we have a great relationship. Um, you've had this problem for a long time. And if I leave, if we break up, you're going to have it with the next woman and the next woman. So you have an opportunity here, you know, to work on this with me because I'm totally open to it. I don't judge you. I just get that you struggle. It breaks my heart that you struggle. I want to help, but I can't be the person who fixes this for you. But I sure can stand side by side with you so let's do this. And we can have fun. That's right. You can have yeah. fun. Yeah. Have a lot of fun. Right. Along the way. This problem. Yeah. I got you this book. Just yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if he says yes, okay. If he accepts the invitation, then buy the book. But don't buy it without talking to him first. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, you can say to him, I think it's important that you find a good sex therapist that can help you. I have friends, I've had friends that sort of in the same boat where whatever partner is just like, nope, I'm good. The sex valve is shut off. But, you know, he, she, whatever is is so great everywhere else that I just like deal with it. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, I just don't know if I can do that. But I get it. I get what they're saying. But I also am like, but, you know, like, I need to get off with that person. <laughs> like, I right. I'm good at it. I'm really good at it. <laughs> but I just want to have that person with me. You know, I want to sure. have my person. Yeah. Dr. Alex brought up, you know, the idea of the connection during sex. And I think, too, that that could be something that maybe you could express to him as well. Like, I love it when you go down on me. But I also really like part of my orgasm is like making out with you and kissing you and like in, you know. And it's like having him getting off on being with me, you know. Yeah. And see how he responds. 
and kind of proceed from there, I think. That would be my suggestion. So you're not circling around with the same tone that you guys have had when addressing this in the past. So you guys don't go to a place of frustration. Defensiveness. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a little uh, excitement around it might make him feel a little less pressure until he can figure out how he wants to proceed with taking care of this. Because I, I think Dr. Alex is right that this is not you. This is him. And it was interesting that he's had these issues before in the past. But I think initially, a little bit of like, baby, let's fucking conquer this attitude. I'm on the sidelines. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, on the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think um, then, like, I hate the idea that conversations about sex at least become so uh, leaden. Dour, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I use the word invitation. Like, this is an opportunity for us to figure this out together. Yeah. And to have fun doing it. So it's not so dour and depressing and horrible. It's not horrible. It's just what his body is doing. So let's get acquainted. Yeah. Let's find out more about why this body does what it does. I think I'm going to be like, hey, like, I want to build a life with you. Like, I want it to continue. But I, we got to be on the same page. Emily, as unqualified as I am, I would avoid maybe talking about the past. Like, we used to have sex. Only because yeah, it's not productive. I, I am guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. Being like, we used to do it this many times and it's uh, it's hard. You know what I mean? It just won't be productive. Right. It's blaming and it's shaming. And, you know, we were talking earlier before you got on the call that, you know, long-term relationships and sex kind of waxes and wanes. You know, sometimes it's great for a long period of time. Sometimes there's a dry spell. It just changes all the time. So this is kind of a getting to know you process that you're still in with him. And this is an opportunity to go deeper, to know each other more intimately, to get more real, which is super vulnerable and scary. Uh, It's probably going to make his anxiety go up. I know. I know. That's another thing, too. It's like, I don't want to add more insult to injury. Well, but there's nothing you can do about that. You can't erase yourself. You have to be honest about what's going on with you. Yeah, you're right. Of course you're right. You're Dr. Allen. I know. She's amazing. <laughs> Emily, please know that you being open and uh, and talking about this stuff will have a big impact on a lot of our listeners because you are not alone. I mean, I've been there. A gazillion people have been there. And so it's it means a lot you shared with us. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you for helping me. You're both great. I love the show. Thanks, Emily. (laughs) I bet we're going to have a lot of feedback uh, about your call. So please keep in touch if you feel like it. I would love that. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to do that. So I'm interested in in, um, hearing what people have to say about it, too. So Thanks, Emily. All right. Well, take care. Thank you, Dr. Alex. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Dr. Alex, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you, too. Bye. 